follow along with us? <laughs> right there? Okay. Judges chapter 7 we'll start off tonight with. Before service, Bruce was showing me something in Judges chapter 6. So I went to get my Bible, and I'm opening it, and I'm looking, and I'm reading, and I'm reading, and I can't find anything what he's saying. I realized I was in Joshua, not Judges. <laughs> Great. I'm not going to find what he's saying in Joshua. <laughs> doesn't make sense to me. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this night tonight. Lord, any time that we could gather as a church together and worship you and then worship you through the study of the word is a good night. And Lord, this is a good night. And we do worship you and we praise you for this opportunity to, to, to do these things, Lord, to bring you glory. And that's our desire. That's our heart, Lord, to learn from you, to learn from your word and to, to uh, honor you with our lives and bring glory to your name. So we ask your blessing upon our time together. Lord, we want to remember our missions team that's getting ready to head out in a couple of weeks, Lord. And Lord, that you would bless them, and as they are even working on the details of everything, Lord, that you would just uh, open up doors and uh, of opportunity for them, and, and just bless all of that, we pray. I don't want to, we don't want to forget that, Lord, as we get closer to the to the missions trip. And so, Lord, bless them. Bless our night tonight, we pray, as we get into your word. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in the late 1800s, there's a Frenchman by the name of Emile Coup who became quite popular as he uh, claimed to discover an almost infallible method of healing people when they were sick. His method was, if, if you were sick, if you just kept insisting that you were really getting better, you can actually talk yourself out of that illness. And all you had to do was repeat this little phrase 20 times in a row, uh, two times a day. Every day in every way I'm getting better and better. Every day in every way I'm getting better and better. Now the Beatles took it a step further. You know, they say, I've got to admit it's getting better, it's getting better all the time. I have to get, admit it's getting better, it's getting better since you've been mine. Well, things haven't turned out so well for the Beatles, and, and nor for this Frenchman. They eventually, most of them died. But throughout history, people have bought into this, this positive attitude, this strong sense of self-confidence in order to succeed. You know, the, the athlete, you know, the psyche that the athlete has got to have in before the big game. You can do it. Be the ball. You are the ball, you know. Or the sales manager, you know, and he's got his, his team together and, and you know, they, they meet in the morning before the doors open and we can do it, we can do it, we can, we can't. But I love the way the Lord prepares his people for the battles they'll face. God doesn't build up our self-confidence. In fact, oftentimes the odds look unsurmountable till we have no confidence in ourselves whatsoever. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 5 and 6. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. See, God, when He looks at you and me, and when He desires to do great work in us, He wants to build up our God confidence, our confidence in God. He shows us how much we need to depend on Him for the great victories in life and how confident we can be in Him, not in ourselves. And there's really no better example of this principle than here in Judges chapter 7 
as God prepares Gideon for this great battle. Remember the Lord had chosen Gideon to head up the deliverance of Israel from the Midianites? First, Gideon was, was reluctant. He wanted to make sure that this truly was from the Lord. And, and, and you know, he, he brought the sacrifice to the Lord. and The Lord consumed it. Now, you would have thought at that point, he would have gone, Oh, man, I, I, I'm convinced, Lord. What would you have me to do? But no. Then he goes, Well, what if I put this fleece before you, Lord? And, and we talked about this last time. Gideon said to the Lord in verse 37 of chapter 6, Lord, well, if you'll save Israel by my hand, as you said, shall I, I put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor? And if there's dew on the fleece only, and it's dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you've said. Verse 38 said, and it was so. Well, then Gideon decides to go the best two out of three. <laughs> okay, well, all right. And, and then in verse six of, uh, verse 39 of chapter 6, he says, I pray just one more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only the fleece, but on the ground let it there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry in the fleece only, but there was dew on the ground. So God, each time, kept assuring Gideon over and over and over again, have your confidence in me. Have your confidence in me. Now, we talked about last time how we really don't need to be led by a fleece. We have the Holy Spirit and we have the, the Word of God to lead us. And I, there's nothing wrong with doing the fleece, but, but you know, I, I, I think for us it's much better just to rely on the Holy Spirit and, and the Word of God. Well, Gideon obeys the Lord. And the first thing the Lord has him do is to tear down his own father's altar to Baal in, in chapter 6. And when the town people saw that, what Gideon did, they were going to kill him. But his father says, well, if Baal is really a god and he doesn't need your help or defense, then let Baal contend with him. You know, and, and, and as a result, Gideon's father really recommitted his life to the Lord and Gideon picked up this nickname, Jerubbaal, which means let Baal contend. So here we are now, we come to chapter 7. The Midianites, along with their allies, have assembled together to wipe out Israel. Gideon sounds his trumpet. And Gideon's clan, the tribe of Manasseh, they gathered together with them. Now, the Israeli army gets bigger as warriors from Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali join in with Gideon. We pick it up now in verse 1 of chapter 7. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Mori in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore, proclaim in the hearing of these people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who laughed, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. So the people took provisions and the trumpets in their hands, and he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those three hundred men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So we all know the story of Gideon. 
In a moment, we're going to read about the great victory the Lord will bring about through Gideon. But all of the upsets celebrated in military victories around the world throughout over all the years, none is going to be so astonishing as this one. Perhaps the only one that comes close is the Six-Day War in 1967 in Israel. But, but here we see Gideon. He's going to have a 300-man army, outnumbered 450 to 1, crush their opponents with a powerful victory. This would be like taking a team of a, a, a football team made up of middle school girls to go against the Kansas City Chiefs. Okay, I mean, the, that's the comparison we have here. The same as getting getting the victory. It's a pretty awful comparison, isn't it? <laughs> I probably could have thought of a better one. But, but, but you see, before God could use Gideon this way, God had to prepare Gideon first. First of all, Gideon's army had to have complete and total dependence upon the Lord and not on themselves. Now understand, where Gideon's army was camped, originally they could no doubt see this mighty Midianite army. And it would have been a terrifying sight. We'll read in verse 12 that they were as numerous as locusts and the camels were without number as a stand by the seashore in a multitude. I mean, can you just picture the scene? According to chapter 8, verse 10, Gideon would be looking at 135,000 Midian army, man to the hilt against his, to begin with, 32,000 men with virtually no weapons at all. And Gideon's thinking, how are we going to do this? There's way too many of them and far too less of us. So the Lord comes to him and tells him one of the most mind-blowing sentences I think any man in this position could have ever heard. And verse 2, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Now, Gideon might have thought, too many? Are you serious? God, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Do you know what's going on here? But God is saying, I see the big picture, Gideon. Breathe, breathe. I'm sure he's probably hyperventilating. And oftentimes, we can get all freaked out because we don't see the big picture. All we see is what's right in front of us. But praise God, he sees the, the end result. He sees the big picture. I've heard it best described that we are ants on a beautiful tapestry. God sees the whole thing, but all we see is that little strand of tapestry in front of us. And, and, and God calls us to trust Him because He is in control. Listen, God is not just interested in simply giving His people victory. He's more concerned with teaching His people to trust in Him. So he says to Gideon with his army of 32,000, there's too many of you. If you win this battle, you'll just become boastful and confident in your own selves. We've got to crunch this down a bit. So the Lord tells Gideon to let anyone who's afraid and go home. And 22,000 split the sea. I think if I were there, it would be 22,001 would be gone after that. I mean, it'd be fearful. But you see, listen, God spoke in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 20, verse 1, he says, when you go out to battle against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So he said, listen, when you see this, don't be afraid. So the, the, the 22,000 that left were disobeying the Lord because they were afraid and they should not have been afraid. The Lord also said in Deuteronomy 20, verse 8, The officers shall speak further to the people and say, What man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. In other words, if you are fearful and afraid, get out of here because we don't want that fear to spread to everyone else. You know, fear is contagious. 
I mean, think about, it wasn't until 18 years ago now, but Y2K. Remember Y2K? And, oh, no, the world is going to end as we know it. Okay, we have to go, and, and, and people were freaking out, and, and, and you know, my in-laws bought me, like, $2,000 worth of canned food. And it took us years to, to get rid of, to give away. I mean, I don't know if the people still have it. I mean, it's like, and it was old when we got it. But anyway. And then you think about the, the, you know, the so-called Christian preppers that are out there, that those that move way out in the middle of the country and they build their bunkers and they store up their weapons and, and food to last them for years. And, and they live as if God is, is suddenly not going to be able to, to see them through. Oh, we got to take care of ourselves. We got to do this together because, because it's going to come a time where, where God's not going to, what do you mean? God's going to give up on you? And this fear comes in people's lives. Listen, we're told in Isaiah 26, 3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. As we trust in the Lord, we have that peace. Isaiah 26, 3 tells us. In other words, if you want perfect peace in your life, then keep your mind focused on Him and He'll give it to you. But once again, when a little fear sets in, people respond to it irrationally. The Bible teaches us that perfect love casts out all fear. When you realize that Jesus loves you perfectly and that God has got a plan and a purpose for everything that He allows in our lives, then we can, number one, trust Him completely and number two, cast aside all fear. So Gideon asked if there were any that were afraid and wanted to go home. More than two-thirds of Gideon's army left. 10,000 10, people that left. You know, Gideon was left for him to fight. Gideon might have thought, wow. Man, the odds are not in our favor. I only got 10,000 men now. We're going to have to need, we're going to need more men. Perhaps he's thinking, well, God's just going to provide those that were not afraid. You know, new, new, new men, stronger men. So God comes to Gideon a second time. And instead of hearing some good news like, here, Gideon, here's some braver men for you. Gideon, here's the Lord said, Gideon, you still got way too many for men for the work that I want to do. So send them home. That, that kneels down and drink the water with their faces in the water. You know, those are the ones that are going to go home. You know, and they you know, run up to the creek and you, you see all these guys with their faces in the water. But there's a handful of men, 300 that would lap it up in their hands and, and drink the water and kind of look around. And, and so down to 300 guys. But you see, that little number perfectly suited God. We should notice something about the people that God chose. The picture here is that 300 were looking around as they drank the water in case the enemy showed up. They were alert. They were keen to their surroundings. Also, God removed the first batch of men who were fearful of the enemy, but kept those who were watchful of the enemy. In the same way, we need to stay alert because we too have an enemy, the devil. But there are two things that we, we should remember about him. We needn't be fearful of him, and what, but we must always uh, be watchful regarding him. We shouldn't be fearful, but we need to be watchful. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, verse 8 and 9, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may, he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Not fearful, but watchful. So those who walk in this manner will be useful for God. And that's what Gideon has left. 300 men that are not fearful, watchful, and will see they're going to be very useful. Yet with only 300 men left, I don't imagine Gideon was sleeping too well. Well, then the Lord comes to him again. Third time, in verse 9, and no doubt Gideon is going, oh, now what? I mean, it's going to be just me left, you know, 32 to 10, not a 300. 
But this time the Lord comes with a command and a promise. Look at verses 9 through 14. It happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. And you shall hear what they say. And afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Now the Midianites and Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as a sand by the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. And he said, I've had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. Now, this is actually kind of funny to me because we see that Gideon was now actually afraid. Because God says, if you're afraid, I want you to go down there and listen to what I want to show you. In fact, maybe he should have been one of the ones that were sent home in the first elimination. But, but again, God, the Lord chose him and he's being merciful to him. And he's teaching Gideon, you need to trust me. Yeah, Gideon's afraid and so he sneaks into the camp with the servant pure. Well, he does and, and there he oversees two Midianite soldiers, overhears two Midianite soldiers discussing a dream that they have. This, a loaf of bread, barley bread, food of the poor people actually, rolling into the camp and trashing this tent. Now the other man understood the dream significant immediately. He said, this means Gideon's going to defeat us. And this is such a, a perfect and great example of, of, of the sovereignty of God. It shows us just how complete control God is in with the control in the world of men. God uh, directs Gideon and Pura's servant to come upon the exact tent at the exact time to hear the exact interpretation of this exact dream. So he's not only protecting Gideon and his servant Pura uh, from being spotted, but the dream that the Midianite had was totally specific for what Gideon needed to hear. I mean, imagine a loaf of bread knocking down a whole tent. But then imagine 300 men defeating 135,000 Midianites. God also led the other Midianites to that same spot just at the, the right time to interpret it precisely, even using Gideon's name. There's nothing else but the, this is nothing else but the sword of Gideon. I mean, what more proof would Gideon need to see that God is in control and God, and he could trust him? I mean, I mean look at all that God has done for him since he started. You see, as Gideon listened to these words, he realized it wasn't a battle between 300 Israelites and 135,000 Midianites. Rather, it was God who was going to be doing the fighting, and the 300 men were just his way of accomplishing, accomplishing his work. And as a result, we look at verse 15, we read, And so it was, when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, that he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. I mean, Gideon had come to realize through all of this the greatness of his God. And what does he do? He worships the Lord. I mean, that should be a, a common reaction when we come to the realization of how great God is. God does something miraculous, amazing in your life. And, and you go, whoa, that's amazing that you did that, God. And you just want to sing praises to the Lord. You want to worship him. 
Listen, in a very real sense, we are never prepared to go to battle against our enemy, the flesh, the world, and the devil until we first know what it means to worship the Lord. To worship the Lord in song and in the study of God's word. Gideon became strong because God taught him not to have confidence in himself, but to have that God confidence. Now look at verse 16. Down to verse 22. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies. And he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camps at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and broke the, the pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that they held. They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. When the three hundred blew the trumpet, the Lord said, Every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. And the army fled to Beth, Acacia, towards Zerah, and far as the border of Abel, Meholah, by Tabith. What a story. He divides his men into three groups of one hundred. Each one had a, a trumpet, an empty pitcher, and, and a torch. And hiding the torches in the pitchers, they encircled the camp, then they blew the trumpets broke the pitchers and exposed the light of the torches and had this great victory. Every man's sword turned against each other. Now there's a, a great picture. Uh, my my mother-in-law always tells me I say picture and picture the same way. I, I don't get it right. But there's a great picture here that we shouldn't miss. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6 and 7, For it is the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. I mean, the whole story of Gideon is the, the verses right there. But this treasure, the light of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is in earthen vessels, speaking of us. We have the light of the heart of the gospel, the good news are in us. We are the, those earthen vessels. And just as Gideon's troops had to break the, the, their earthen vessels to shine the light, so too we must be broken. Each of us who are Christians have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God inside of us, but that light cannot shine until we are broken. David wrote this in Psalm 51, verse 15 to 17. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight, delight in birth offering. The fact, sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. See, the Lord desires us to continually be broken and, and contrite. That word contrite in the Hebrew comes from a root word meaning to be crushed or, or beaten to pieces. Now that doesn't mean we need to be walking around depressed and discouraged and bummed out all the time, beaten down. Oh, oh, look at that person. What a broken and contrite heart that he has. Now that's not what contrite heart means. What it means is there is no room for any pride in our lives whatsoever. It means that apart from Jesus Christ, we are, we are nothing. That we know who we are living for. To have a contrite heart means that any pride is broken into pieces so that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God can shine out from us. 
Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So, so I love this, this picture here. When Gideon's armies shine their light, their enemy was defeated. I mean, what, what, what fellowship does light have with darkness? Live in the light of Jesus Christ. Resist the enemy and he'll flee from you. Look now at verse 23. And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and all of Manasseh and pursued the Midianites. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize from them the watering places as far as Bethbar and the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Bethbar and the Jordan. And they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued Midian and brought out the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. Now, although only 300 were used at first, now that the enemy has turned tail and run, Gideon now calls for, in for backup from all the different tribes for the pursuit. And Gideon sends messengers that say, hey, let's, let's go get him, boys. He says, the watering places are ours to be had. Listen, the same thing is true for us. When we realize that it's a spiritual battle that we face, and we, when we trust in the Lord for the victory, not relying on our own strength, our own abilities, or trying to figure out things on our own, God brings the victory, but He also brings times of refreshing. But watering places are ours to be had. Isaiah tells us, when we trust in the Lord and obey, the Lord says in Isaiah 58, 11, The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul and draught and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Isaiah 58, 11. The watering places are to be ours to have. So verse 25, they catch and kill Oreb and Zeb, the two Midianite commanders, and bring their heads back to Gideon. Now, they probably should have been killed just for having weird names like that anyway, Oreb and, and Zeb. No. Just kidding, okay, I'm just kidding. Actually, Oreb means raven and uh, scavenger bird, and Zeb means wolf. Both, both enemies of the Lord, they were, they were both killed. Okay, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Now the men of Ephraim said to him, why have you done this to us by not calling us when you want to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. So he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God has delivered into your hands a prince of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger towards him subsided when he said that. See, the men of Ephraim, they're offended that Gideon didn't call them into the first battle. Remember the, 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 you know, the, the 300. But, but the reality of it is, Gideon hadn't called most of the other tribes either. The tribe of Ephraim was just looking for something to complain about. Ever since Manasseh and Ephraim's firstborn rights were switched back in Genesis 48, there's been this rivalry between them and contention and their descendants. Isaiah speaks about that in Isaiah 9.21. It says, Manasseh shall devour Ephraim and, and Ephraim and Manasseh together they shall be against Judah. So, the reality of it is Gideon's tribe of Manasseh had a history of contention and strife with the uh, Ephraimites that, that Gideon could have, he could have bought into that. He could have said, well, what right do you have to say what we should and shouldn't have done? You know, he could have said, who do you think you are? He could have tried to defend himself and turn more, and, and in turn, you know, more strife and turmoil, turmoil would have risen up. Oh yeah, and, and got this, this big shouting match going on. But instead, Gideon applies a proverb, Proverbs 15.1, 
A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. How blessed we would be in so many situations if we did the same thing. If we just learned to control our tongues and to put out fires instead of fan the flames. Here Gideon is, is demonstrating di- di- diplomacy, tact, love. I mean, what does he say? He says, you guys want a far greater victory than we did. What we've done is inconsequential compared to the work you've done in catching Oreb and Zeb. I mean, he's, he's, he's you know, commending them. He's saying, well, you guys, you guys did great. Ronald Reagan wisely said, there's no limit to what a man can accomplish if he doesn't care who gets the credits. I like that. Same way, there's no limit to what the body of Christ can accomplish if we don't care who gets the credit, just so that God, Jesus, gets the glory. Verse 4. When Gideon came to the Jordan, he and his 300 men who were with him crossed over, exhausted but still in pursuit. Then he came to the men of Succoth. Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. And the leaders of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Wow. Then he went up from there to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him and said, and the men of Sekhoth had said, So he also spoke to them, the men of Penuel, saying, When I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. I mean, Gideon and his 300 men went out in pursuit of these two Midianite kings. They get to Sekhoth. They ask for supplies. But the men there say, No way we're going to help you. You're crazy going against the Midianite kings. No way. We're not going to help you. We're not going to get anything. Same story at Penuel. Gideon had expected camaraderie, expected patriotism, support. I mean, these were fellow Israelites. Instead, they were rejected. Both these cities are part of the tribe of Gad. The name Gad means a troop. Specifically, the name refers to a troop that crushes through the enemy. Fact is, these people were not living up to their name or their heritage. They wouldn't even help the man God chose to deliver them from their enemies in his fight for deliverance. <coughs> Excuse me. They're, they're a lot like the politicians of our day who have to see which way the wind is blowing before they make a decision. You know, you get those guys, well, I don't know, let me, let me see before I make a decision. And if, if there's more of a crowd on this side than on that side, then they'll make the decision. Now, they're afraid to take a stand for God. So in refusing to help Gideon, they're actually guilty of giving aid to the enemy. They failed to realize that by giving Gideon bread, they would be guaranteeing future benefits and blessings for their people. Listen, there's, there's no neutral ground here. There are still people around who do the same thing these cities did. When it comes to serving the Lord, oh, oh I don't want to get involved. Oh, I don't, I don't think so. Or we shouldn't. Or, or we, we, we could never. And, and there's after, you know, every excuse under the sun why they can't serve the Lord or why they can't support this or do that. Listen, there are no gray areas when it comes to the work of the Lord. You can't be neutral when it comes to serving Him. Jesus put it this way in Matthew twelve thirty. He who is not with me is against me, and who does not gather with me scatters abroad. I like the way one pastor puts it. He puts it this way. Those who refuse to support God's work will not support those who do serve Him. Those who do not respect the work of God will not respect the workers of God. When we refuse to give to the work of the Lord, 
when we refuse to participate in the work of the Lord, and when we refuse to respect the work of the Lord, just because we are looking out for our own interests first, we are guilty of aiding the enemy in his work. So Gideon tells the men of both these cities that when he returns in victory, they're going to pay dearly. Now, back to uh, verse 10. Now Ziba and Zalmunna were at Karkor, and the armies with them, about 15,000, all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. Then Gideon went up by the road of those who had dwelt in tents on the east of Nobah and Jagbaha, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. When Zeba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them, and he took the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. Let's see. Zeba and Zalmunna with a 15,000-man army against Gideon's 300. Those are pretty good odds when God's on your side. I mean, if God is for us, who can be against us? They attack this unsuspecting army. They're victorious. I think the lesson is those who refuse to give up. Those who persist in following the Lord's will for their lives will see God use them in great and mighty and powerful ways. That's His promise. Galatians 6, 9, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we don't lose heart. Hang in there. Keep going. Well, now it's repayment time for those cities that failed to help out. Look at verse 13. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle from the ascent of Harris, and he caught a young man of the men of Sakath and interrogated him. And he wrote down for him the leaders of Sakath and its elders, 77 men. Then he came to the men of Sakath and said, Here are Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your weary man? And he took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth. They tore down the tower of Penol and they killed the men of Succoth. And so what they would do is they would put the men down on the ground and they would put the, 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 the thorns and the, and the briars on top of them and then just stop it down on, on their backs. I mean, he's just, just, just tearing these guys down. Now, you know, you know, first he, he, he you know, grabs his boy from Sarkoth and, and he finds out who they are. He wants to make sure, you know, man, the, the leaders, these guys are the ones responsible for not helping the leadership here. And, and the adventures has happened to them. Now, verse 18. And he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, now we're back to the Midianites, what kind of men were they who you killed at Tabor? So they answered, as you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. Then he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. And he said to Jethro, his firstborn, Rise, kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. So Zeba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and kill us, for as a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon rose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels' necks. Now again, we're back to the kings of Midian. Gideon wants some answers from Ziba and Zalmunna. Gideon wants to find out if they were the ones responsible for killing uh, his brothers at Tabor. When he discovers that it really was them, he gives them both a death sentence. And he turns to his son and says, Son, get up and kill them. But his son, we read, he was still young, so he was afraid. Now the kings of Midian, they would actually be relieved uh, that the son wouldn't do, because a couple reasons. It was a disgrace to die at the hands of a child, but number two, it would have been much less painful being killed by a strong man rather than a weak child. See, one swipe of the sword from Gideon, and, and it's done. We read that Gideon arose and killed Zeb and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on the camel's necks. Finished. 
done. God did with Gibeon, uh, Gibeon, Gideon, what he told him he would do. The victory has been, been won. All is great, right? Well, not so fast. Gideon is now forced to really face the greatest trial of his life. I mean, here's this peaceful farmer. He'd been called by God to be a warrior, a man who thought that his greatest battles were behind him. Little did Gideon know that the greatest battles he would face were still right in front of him. Look at verse 22. Then a man of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your sons, and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Be our king. He says, You're the man. We want you to rule over us. Verse 23. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. See, that the Israelites are supposed to be living under a theocracy. That is, they're supposed to be living uh, governed by God. And the Lord, of course, knew that they would only endure for this time before finally demanding a king. Even in Deuteronomy, he had given instructions regarding this. Listen to Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 and 15. He says, When you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, and possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So they were to be governed by God. If they chose not to be, they were at least to seek God regarding who would be the king. But, but they, here they, don't, they do neither. Gideon here makes a tough decision in denying their offer. After all, it's not every day the entire you know, country asks you to rule over them. And notice when this temptation comes. It came on the heels of a great success. Listen, you're never more vulnerable to falling into the sin of pride than you are just after you experience a great victory. Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived other than Jesus Christ, said this in Proverbs 16, 18, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Yet Gideon, I mean, at this point would have nothing to do with it. He overcame that temptation. He said, no way, Jose. He denied himself the glory and the honor. And he did, delighted in bringing glory to the Lord, pointing it back to the Lord. Well, sometimes you just have to say no. And that's what, what Joseph did. Remember, Potiphar's wife tempted him. He said, no, I'm, I'm out of here. Sometimes you need to say it to your friend. Sometimes you need to say it to your family. Sometimes you need to say it to yourself. No, I'm not going to go down that path. I'm going to resist this temptation. God help us to have the backbone to do it. Gideon says in verse 23, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. I mean, Gideon got it. He, he knew it's the Lord who should rule over us, not men, not elders, not pastors, and not people. And if you're involved in ministry, our job is to serve and to help one another, not rule. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.24, Not that we have dominion over your faith, but are fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. We're all just fellow workers serving the Lord. Now there's that tendency in the heart of each of us to want to look to a man for direction. Why? Well, because it's easier to go to someone and say, well, tell me what it is I should do, rather than to go to the Lord and say, Father, what is it that you want me to do? How should I handle this according to your word and your ways? What's your desire? What's your intention for my life? It's easier to go to, well, what does God have to say for me here? No, we go to the Lord ourselves. We need to seek His face. Again, Gideon says, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And this really speaks well of his character. This really was a high point in Gideon's life. 
If the story would end here, it would be great. Great story of Gideon. But what verse 24 shows us is that the Bible is not a respecter of persons. It shows us the good, the bad, and the ugly. And for Gideon, it was about to get a little ugly. Gideon says, no, I'll never be made king. But look at verse 24. Then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you, that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, we will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes, which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were all around the camels' necks. Then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in the city of Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted their heads no more. And the country was quiet for forty years in the days of Gideon. Then Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had seventy sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine was, who was in Shechem also bore him a son whose name he called Abimelech. Good as his decision was to turn down the kingdom, Gideon was not perfect by any means. He asked for some gold that was taken in the battle and made it an ephod, a short, uh, kind of a sort of an apron. Then he took it into the city of Ophrah, put it on display just to remind all, all the people of the Lord's great victory, their deliverance from the Midianites, and look what the Lord has done. But this has proven to be a slippery slope for them because just about the time they made an object to remind them of the victory, the object becomes the, the, the object of, of, of an idol. And they start worshiping the object. And it became a stumbling block to Gideon, to his family, because rather than pointing to the victory of God, Gideon became the hotshot, the guy who, who was going to be made king. And so towards the end of his life, he, he became a, a prideful man as the years progressed. With the Midianites defeated, Israel enjoyed another 40 years of peace. Meanwhile, Gideon, he multiplied wives and concubines to himself. And in fact, he named one of his sons Abimelech. What, Abimelech, what does Abimelech mean? My father is king. Now, that kind of gives us insight into Gideon's heart at this time. Gideon, he really is a study in contrast and confusion. Here's a man who, who claims to know the Lord, and from all accounts, he absolutely did. A man who turned down personal glory to promote the glory of the Lord. But then in the, in the end, he allows himself to be caught up in a trap that was so obviously wrong, and, and just allowing pride to, to, to rule in his heart. The lesson for us is we just we need to be careful what we do in our lives. Always keep our guard up. Now, don't be afraid, but be watchful. Keep your testimony strong, even up to the end, so that we're able to say, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and my time of departure is hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, verse 32, Now Gideon, the son of Jarosh, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Jarosh's father in Ophrah of the Abysrites. So it was as soon as Gideon was dead that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the bells and made Baal their god. <sighs> Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God or delivered them from the hands of their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbaal, Gideon, in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. Once again, the statement we read in chapter 2 proves to be true. Judges 2.19 
And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following the other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. You know, the, 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 you look at them and you go, how could they? And why would they? And, and oh, how terrible they do that. And then you realize, oh, yeah, we do the same thing all the time. And, and Lord, help us. Help us to keep our eyes on you, focus on you, not to fall into that trap of thinking of anything being uh, of ourselves. Lord, our sufficiency is in you, God. And to you be all the glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time tonight, Lord, for this uh, amazing story of Gideon and how you did this incredible work, Lord, to, to men who learned, need to learn to trust in you. Lord, that we would learn the same lessons, Lord, that you see the big picture. Lord, we are just ants on a tapestry moving along, but you have the, the finished product. You know what you have created and you know what you have created in us and what you want of us. Lord, help us to be those vessels, Lord, that are, are fit for your use. Broken vessels, Lord, that, that the light, your light can shine out from our lives. And we can glorify you in all that we do, Lord, as we are servants, Lord, not ruling over people, but helping and serving and caring any way that we can for one another. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunities that you give us to bring glory to your name and honor you. Give us more, we pray, Lord, more opportunities to bring glory to you in the time that we have left on this earth. And Lord, help us, Lord, to continue in the faith, to not grow weary in doing good, knowing that we will reap what we have sown. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.